Let me tell you a story about a history podcast called We Talk About Dead People. Not a big thing, barely made any money at all, aside from a few crazy patrons who gave their hearts to the thing. It was run by this crazy duo, called themselves Aaron and George. Who knows if those were their real names, and who cares? The mystery's all part of the fun. They would do some dank research in the corners of the internet, dusty old libraries, wherever the answers lay, that's where they searched. Put together what they called in the old days a podcast, and record it to trigger normies and presumably own the libs, the neocons, the shills, the boomers, and the World Economic Forum, all in one go. Some would say it was a crazy pursuit from the beginning. I would say it was a legend if it weren't so stupid. But you can hardly tell the difference these days, now can ya? We talk about dead people. It's a show from another planet, another time. Probably the result of a bad trip at a party in the dead center of LA you haven't woken up from just yet. But it doesn't matter. It's a hell of a good time, whether you're conscious on this plane or on the next. Just never forget that you're here forever, because once you're dead, you're a target. What's what uh what's your week been like? I feel like you're fishing for something, Aaron. I feel like you started a story that you didn't exactly fill in for me this morning. Well, I am um recovering from a very very interesting uh Wednesday night, in fact. And yes, despite the fact it is Friday, I'm still recovering from it because I learned an extremely important moral lesson about the importance of paying attention to the time. Ah. Care to elaborate I, um, at all? Well, I happened to be in Washington, D.C., and I was having dinner, and I was having a very a very nice time, as one, one does when one goes out to dinner with friends. And I somewhat lost track of the time, and when I returned to my parking garage, I found that it had closed for the night completely. Like, big steel gate had just come over the one entrance, and there was no way in or out and no way to get to my car. So I wandered around the streets of Washington, D.C. until 6 a.m. when I was able to retrieve my car. And what did you see in the mean streets of Washington, D.C.? Honestly, like nothing. Like I, I, wasn't in a, I wasn't in an area that really had anything going on at 3 a.m. It was uh, mostly conference centers and hotels and stuff. So I just kind of wandered, you know, being alone with my thoughts, which is always a terrifying prospect. Yes, yes. Uh <laughs> We know that your thoughts are uh, uh, very terrifying. That's why we have you on this show, you know. And so then I got my car, drove several hours, um, was able to get to work, 
taught three classes, had a bunch of meetings, and then collapsed into a comatose pile of jelly around 8 p.m. last night. Yeah, because I texted you late and I was like, are you up? And then I woke up to a text. I was definitely not not up. <laughs> Literally first time in recorded history that I was not up. It It's true. You're always awake. It's very interesting. But, you know, I, I don't know how you fit in all the Elden Ring you play and the Tarkov or whatever um, with your schedule. But somehow you do. And you do this podcast. And speaking of the podcast, <laughs> we have a special guest today. Um, I'd like to introduce everyone to Wendy from the, I think it's Peshtigo Fire Museum. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay, because I I'm pronounced glad you it, said that because I was going to completely mispronounce that if I, I did saying it. I completely <laughs> mispronounced it the first time Wendy and I talked. She corrected yeah, I was going to say that he got it wrong. A lot of people do. Yeah, it just it just rolls right off the tongue. You know, you want to say Peshtigo, but it's Peshtigo. And, and uh, you're even from Wisconsin too. That just I know I'm a failure. You should know these things. I'm a failed Wisconsin. Like you've got to turn in your Wisconsin card. <laughs> Um, so just to just to lead us into this, um, because it, it is fairly unusual for us to do an interview on the show, I should just tell a little bit of how I arrived at this at this uh, juncture. Um, I was researching the Chicago Fire um, for reasons that will remain uh, personal. I, I uh, sometimes uh, <laughs> get down little rabbit holes, and I discovered that the Chicago Fire is nothing in comparison to this thing known as the Peshtigo Fire, and I had never heard of it before. So the rabbit hole continued and I started digging and I eventually ended up on this, this, uh, this historical society and I found out they had an email. So I was like, Hey, maybe we can talk to somebody. So I sent an email and I got a response from Wendy and she was super cool. We talked for a little bit about, uh, about the fire and you know, what kind of things they, they do up there at the historical society. And, uh, I found it really illuminating, and so I was like, hey, we need to bring her on and get the full story. So, Wendy, I, I'm not exactly sure how, how to introduce you, but I was, so I was thinking, like, maybe you could introduce yourself sort of like we did in the first call. Maybe okay. tell a little bit of your well, story. Well, in my mom, she was on the Historical Society, and she was the head curator at the museum. The Peshtigo Historical Society runs the Peshtigo Fire Museum. And back in 2017, she convinced me to attend a meeting and I go into this meeting. And the average age is probably about 70 or 75 years old. And I'm the young buck there. The next year they made me secretary on the board of directors. And I go in there I, with my computer. I felt so awkward bringing my computer in front of all these elderly people, but I did. Um, and that's how I got on the board of directors. As I said, my mom was the head curator and she was doing things like ordering and the schedules and the scheduling can get com complicated because these old curators, they have a busy social life. And I swear it's busier than my social life. And you got to work all the days in which they're volunteering around them. So when she resigned, they asked me to do it. And then I figured if I was going to be head curator, I should also be a curator. And that's kind of how I became what I am now. And so how long have you been, been doing this? 
Well, I've been involved with the society since 2017. Uh, the curating, you know, being the head curator probably since about 2019. And I just started as a curator last year and it was kind of trial by fire because on my very first day, someone from NPR came in and wanted to interview me. <laughs> Trial by fire. That that's good. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. when you told me you were interviewed by NPR, I was like, whoo, I don't know, man. I'm not NPR. <laughs> I'm not sure I can do this one. You know, I'm, we're not we're not that big, but um no, I I, I wasn't sure I could do it either. But you did, and, and you were telling me that the, the episode went over super well, right? Yeah, he said I did one of the best jobs he's heard. Yeah, well, I believe it because uh it's a it's I mean I think you're an interesting person. I think the story itself is crazy fascinating. And it's one of those stories that I feel like hasn't been told quite enough. Um, I don't know. I mean, George, have you ever heard of the Peshtigo fire before for this interview? Um, before this interview, yes. When you texted me at like midnight a couple weeks ago, have you ever heard of the Peshtigo fire? And I was like, what? No. It was, it was completely out of the blue. And I was like, I... I'd be real with you. I have no idea what you're talking about. And that's, that's amazing <laughs> because you are, I mean, you're, you're a very historical kind of person and you know, we've been running this show for almost five years now. And, uh, I mean, dude, I, I have never heard of it. And that's why, you know, finding a, a literal museum dedicated to it was such a, such a win, I think, because, well, you know, it's, um, it's, it's awesome when you can find a little piece of history like this that doesn't get the airtime it deserves and you can go and steal some of it. You know what I mean? So, um, in for, uh, I think for just to begin, we should just let Wendy tell the story as she knows it. And, uh, perhaps include some of these stories along the way that, you know, I'm sure exist, um, around individuals who experience this and all the rest. So, um, Wendy, if you, if you wouldn't mind, <laughs> Sure. I'll start out with kind of comparison about the everyone's heard of the Chicago fire. In the Chicago fire, there was 1,200 acres that burned. In the Peshtigo fire, there was 1.2 million acres that burned. Um, you know, you hear about the California wildfires. The largest California wildfires, I actually looked this up last night, was the August complex fire. And that did burn 1,032,000 acres, but it burned over a period of three months. The Peshtigo fire burned in one night. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was, it was intense. In the Chicago fire, there was 250 to 300 people that died. And the Peshtigo fire, there was anywhere from 1,200 to 2,500 people that died they don't know because birth records, they were burned. And, you know, there were farmers out in the field having babies that didn't record them. Right. Right. Yeah. So back then to kind of set the stage, Peshtigo, it was a booming lumbering community. Um, there was about 1200 people in the city with 500 people in the surrounding areas. They don't know um, the exact, as I said, the exact population, the city, it was surrounded by, 
dense forests. I think it was mostly pine with some maple. And my mom, who's the curator, she said that it would some some of the trees, it would take six grown men with their arms stretched wide to put their arms around a tree. Oh, wow. We had the world's largest woodenware factory that was coincidentally owned by William Ogden, who was the first mayor of Chicago. So he bought land and the, the sawmills and stuff in Peshtigo to help build Chicago. Um, so, so, uh, uh, so it was, uh, it was, I mean, a lot of lumbering, as you said, but was there anything else going on out there? It was just, was it largely farmland or was it just almost a hundred percent just, you know, lumbering? It was lumbering. We had homesteaders, you know, they'd get the land if they came and cleared the land. Um, it was mostly lumbering. Okay. So you you can kind of see a little bit of a, a setup here, right? Yeah, it was a sawdust town. The sidewalks were made of wood. The roads were paved with sawdust. Even mattresses were stuffed with sawdust. Wow. I've never actually heard of that before. Um, George, have you heard of this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sawdust is a much cheaper uh, alternative to bird feathers. Interesting. So. Gen- I've never slept with a sawdust pillow, so I can't speak to it, but uh, generally considered to be much less comfortable than bird feathers. I can see that. So I've not really spent uh, much time at all in that part of the country, actually. So I was just wondering if you could just say a little bit about what what sort of landscape are we talking about in terms of these forests? Um, that far north, are we talking a lot of pine trees or are we talking about oak? Like what kind of forests are these? Virgin pine forests. Okay. Um, there was an area outside of Peshtigo called the sugar bush. And I never really knew why is it called the sugar bush? And I guess it's because there were a lot of sugar maples in that area. But otherwise, it was a lot of pine. Big, tall ones that, you know, were there from when they first grew. Actually, it, it said, I don't know if it's true or not that a squirrel could go from one side of the state to the other over to Minnesota and never touch the ground, that it was that dense of forests. That's so interesting because having driven through that area several times, it doesn't look like that was that that's the way. I mean, it's definitely not that way now. Um, No, man, they must have they must have really been busy getting at these trees. And to hear you say that, you know, I think several men would have to connect arms to get around one of these. I haven't seen a tree that big since I was in California. I know. You think we had them here? Really? Yeah. It's hard to believe. <laughs> and it also, when you think about it, pine, once you get a, once you get a very high air temperature, pine goes up very quickly and mm-hmm. somewhat explosively. Once you start getting the, uh, the resins and the saps melting and vaporizing, that can, I, I can see why this all was able to happen in one night because it just, it basically would be a, a wave of exploding trees. It's funny you say that because one theory that's been thrown out there at how the fire started was a meteor. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because people reported seeing, you know, burning things in the sky. Well, yeah, you think about a campfire, you hear the popping wood and you see popping chunks of wood go. Well, 
yeah, it's, you know, these pieces of wood are exploding out of these pine trees and shooting through the sky because of all the gases and the tornado, the fire tornado. Well, we'll get to that. Uh, oh my gosh. But <laughs> it, it wasn't a meteor. Can I, then in that case, can you give us a picture of that night and leading up to when yeah. it started? So I'm going to start with fall, the fall and winter of 1870. It was very dry. They didn't have a lot of snow. And then in the spring and summer, there was hardly any rain. And in fact, there hadn't been any rain since July. And the fire happened in October. Um, so fires were common kind of that summer because there were lumberjacks clearing the land to get the wood. There were the farmers and homesteaders that I mentioned, and they were building the railroad. And they would cut down the trees, take what they needed, put the rest of the, the slashings, I think it's called, in a pile and burn it. Sometimes they'd extinguish the fires, other times not. And why that lack of snow was important is that Peshigo, they were surrounded by peat bogs, you know, peat, Ireland, they mm -hmm. use it to burn fires. So the fires would get into the ground, into the peat bogs, and the snow would put them out in the winter. And the winter before the fire, it didn't put them out completely. Uh, the week before October 8th, there had been a rather large fire that they weren't sure that they'd be able to put out. Every able man, man was called to put out that fire, and they even shut down the woodenware factory, and all the men went. It took them 14 hours to put it out, but they were able to, and they thought, whew, we're safe. If we can do this, we can, we can do it. Um, they had kind of a burn line around the city. So October 8th, 1871, it was a Sunday night, and that day, the smoke and Peshtigo, the air... It was heavy with smoke, but the people went about their daily activities. They were used to the smoke from the smaller fires that had been burning off and on all summer long. As the day grew darker, there was a strange red glow that appeared in the west, and they could kind of hear a rumbling sound. I think it was probably about them then. Some of them began heading to the river and other places that they thought they'd be safe. And then at dusk, the winds picked up and it started carrying dust and ashes and sparks all over. At nine o'clock, there was a low, the low rumbling train that people had, the low rumbling sound that people had heard. It grew and it's, they said it sounded like a freight train. And the wind increased even more. Um, the crimson sky, it brightened, and suddenly large sheets of flame exploded out from the trees surrounding Peshtigo. High, the winds were so high that people who were running, they blew to the ground. They fell to the ground. Um, it made it, they said, I mean, it's sawdust. So the air itself, it seemed that was on fire, you know, all the sawdust is kicking up and blowing and the air was on fire. There's a story of one girl, she had long blonde hair 
She's running to the river and her hair caught on fire behind her. She died. She ended up dying. Oh my gosh. For a little bit of perspective, how many, how many people were in this area total? Do you have an idea? I mean, I know we talked about population being unclear, but if you had to give us an idea. I, I don't really know other than the population, but also the, they had people that would come to work at the sawmill, the sawmills. The night before the fire, 200 men had come into town to work at the sawmills. Okay. Bad timing on their part. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this, there's this like freight train sound and all this, like, you know, an orange sky, just like something's coming. I mean, I can't imagine how scary that would be. Jeez. Yeah. And one of the priests in town had said, if it looks like things are going to get bad, I'll ring the bells. And I guess at around 830, he did ring the bells. So there was definitely like some lead up to this where um, it didn't just like, you know, suddenly come in. It was, I mean, well, I guess it did suddenly come in, but at least some people were watching for this. Was there a, I mean, was there a history of this kind of thing happening where there's smaller fires leading up to this? Well, there were the smaller fires and, you know, there was the one the week before, but they had no, almost everyone, but one person who I can tell about later had no comprehension of what would have possibly been coming. I mean, how could you imagine that the air itself would be on fire? Yeah. When the fire, when it hit Peshtigo, it was literally a firestorm, um, which is a, a tornado, a fire tornado. And some people said that tornado was a mild wide and the temperature inside, it can reach one to 2000 degrees. Um, Peshtigo, it, this, this fire, it created its own weather system and it's been studied and I think they even studied it to, for some purposes for world war to use for warfare. Um, I'm not exactly sure on the details, but everything in the fire's path was instantly consumed within one hour. The entire city was gone. I can see why I can see why people might want to attribute this to like a meteorite because I'm thinking of the the Carrington event. Do you know about that? No. Oh, there was a George. Do you you know about the Carrington event? I do not. Oh, um, I shouldn't have even brought it up because I don't know enough to talk about it. But there was this gigantic explosion. Um, let me Google it real quick so I can get the see Carrington event. Um, there was a giant explosion that took place. Um, they called it a solar storm, uh, 1859 over in, uh, where is that? How can it not tell me exactly where it happened? Either way, it, it blew up a whole bunch of forest and it was just one of these things that they didn't, they don't, they still don't know exactly where it came from, but it was so powerful. Um, they researched it, I believe when they were trying to figure out how to make nukes. Uh, this sounds similar, but I mean, I'm yeah. sure the circumstances are slightly different. Yeah. 
Um, I didn't mean to derail there. <laughs> no, that's okay. No. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, because the so so this this bells ringing, people are fleeing to these rivers, and is it just one river, or are there like smaller lakes and things? Because I know there's a lot of there's lakes up here. No lakes in Peshtigo. Probably some ponds. Um, there's some creeks. So most of the people who survived that night had gone to the river in the center of town. You know, there's the east side of the river, the west side of the river. The people on the east side of the river thought they'd be safe if they got to the west side and vice versa. West side, you know, oh, we got to get to the other side of the river. We'll be safe when we get over there. But everyone converged in the middle. And at some point, the bridge caught on fire and collapsed and no one was safe. Um, there were creek beds coming up to the river. It was dry. There wasn't a lot of water in them. Some people buried themselves in the mud. So there wasn't a whole lot. And then you also got to remember, it's a logging community. How do you get logs from one area to another? You send them down the river. So there's logs in the river and they're burning. There are wild animals in the river thinking they're going to be safe. There's farm animals. It was a fight for survival in that, in that river. So, um, there, there's this, uh, so yeah, I actually read a book about this when I was a kid about, um, logging and using rivers to transport things. Uh, George, did you unmute yourself? Were you going to say something? Um, I was going to just uh, say something about the uh, the World War uh, World War Two reference, I think. Um, but we've got to we got to move beyond that. But I was just going to say, yeah, this actually a lot of what I'm hearing here reminds me a lot of the firebombing of Dresden, because what the uh, the technique used was essentially encircling a whole area with uh, bombs that burned to such a temperature they actually ended up sucking the air out of entire city blocks and so even if the flames didn't kill you you had hundreds of people suffocating to death because the fires were burning so hot they literally consumed all the oxygen yeah and i can see this i can see this chaotic event happening in this river with all these logs around i mean can you i can't even imagine like like you said the two sides being like oh if we get to the other side we'll be safe Man, the chaos in that river must have been astounding. Well, the priest of the town, he wrote a book afterwards. And this is what he wrote about what it was like in the river. Flames started over the river. The air itself was on fire. Our heads were in continual danger. It was only by throwing water constantly over them and our faces and beating the river with our hands that we kept the flames at bay. Above my head, as far as the eye could reach into space, alas, to brilliantly lighted, I saw nothing but immense volumes of flames covering the firmament, rolling over the other with stormy violence as we see masses of clouds driven wildly hither and thither by the fierce power of the tempest. So these people are in the river, they look up, they see flames, they look over, they see flames. They literally thought it was the end of the world. I believe it. I totally believe it. Uh, this feels like an apocalyptic situation for sure. I mean, yeah. fire on both sides, all this stuff going on in the river. I mean, oof, 
you know, we get pictures and, and little accounts from the Chicago fire and it's like, oh, you know, there was all the buildings were going up and we had to leave the city. Uh, but this just sounds like hell on earth. I mean, I hate to yeah. say it like that, but this sounds like hell on earth. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm kind of amazed. Uh, there's not like some famous American painting of this scene. Cause yeah, that whole, that whole scene in the river just sounds, well, I mean, yeah, hellish, but also just in, incredibly dramatic and chaotic. And I'm amazed that there's not some famous painting depicting it. Well, I don't know that there's it's famous, but we do have a mural in the museum of before, during and after the fire. And the during the fire is quite big. And last summer when I was working at the museum, I learned that some of the scenes in that mural actually did happen. Like there's a lady, an old lady hanging on to the horns of a I don't know if it's a cow, a steer, whatever. Um, and she had been holding onto a log and this cow came into the river, locked, knocked her off the log. So she hung on to his horns and she was able to survive through the night. So there's, the, the, the stories are in the mural. Um, even though... And then even though the city burned in an hour, they had to stay in the river almost all night because the ground was still smoldering and it was too hot to walk on. It's October in Wisconsin and it's cold. The water's cold. People died of hypothermia. And the ground was too hot to walk on at the same time. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They had to stay in the river. There's one boy he held his brothers in his arms all night. You know, he'd get their heads wet to keep them safe. So their hair, hair didn't start on fire, um, kept their heads above water. And when they got out in the next morning, he found that they had died of hypothermia. It's crazy. Yeah. Some people had went into their wells to stay safe. Some people were okay. But others, like you said, George, it, if the fire went over, it sucked the oxygen out. And then they died. of su They suffocated in their wells because all the air was gone. Because there's only one place for air to come in from, and it's above. So, Yep, and it fuels the fire. Wow. There were people who would bury themselves in the muddy creek beds. There was one guy, he buried his family. And then he buried himself 10 feet away. They died. He survived. Um, you know, people, they'd go in the middle of a field, you know, under a blanket that they'd have to keep getting wet. You know, some people would die. Others wouldn't. There would be no rhyme or reason. I just was looking in a book this morning. There'd be bodies in perfect shape with coins in perfect shape in the middle of burnt out ground the bodies were untouched but the ground around them was black and That's so weird yeah how did they not burn i mean yeah they died probably suffocation carbon monoxide poisoning not carbon monoxide um you know just breathing in the burned air but why didn't their bodies when the ground around them died i have no idea uh George, do you have any idea? 
I, I certainly don't fire, uh, fire, um, it's not, I've never actually studied. I mean, I know that the, these days they're able to tell a ridiculous amount of things by forensic examination of studies, but I imagine that, uh, that science is probably relatively primitive in the uh, 19th century. Oh yeah, yeah. I think so. That's so strange. Yeah. And then when they were able to come out of the water, they'd try, you know, they'd go by some smoldering logs, trying to keep themselves warm, warm. Um, you know, but a lot of people were badly burned and somebody wrote, you could hear people moaning, you know, because a lot of people were in pain from the burns. Um, they went looking for their families. There was an Irishman, my mom always says, an Irish lumberjack. He walked to Marinette, which is about seven miles away, to get help. They had no idea what was going on in Peshtigo. And then news to other areas of the fire didn't get out for two days. And the, the telegraph lines in Peshtigo had burned down that in that fire the week before the, the big fire. Oh, oh, wow. No, yeah. and I imagine that there's sort of, there's sort of two, two, two tragedies here going on, going on. Cause you have this initial, you know, terrible fire, but then the way from what I, from what I'm, I'm looking at a map right now, yeah, it doesn't look like there's that many other people around. So even after the fire is gone, you still have all these people who need help who are, pretty much unable to get it. Like I'm thinking I gave a tour of the battle of Gettysburg last year and you know, in the aftermath of battle, there are so many dead and wounded and stuff, but there's people around, you know, you're in a settled area. So people are going out and looking for the wounded and you know, there's field hospitals being set up because even though you've had this enormous chaotic battle, there's still lots of people around who aren't, who weren't part of it, who weren't, you know, directly involved. And so the wounded are able to get help and be taken off. But in a place like, Peshtigo, when basically everyone there is part of this massive tragic fire, even once it's over, there's still not an easy way for people to get help. And yeah, it's sort of terrible to think of people, you know, lying there injured from the fire and there's just no one around to help them. Right. There was, I think, a boarding house or hotel in Marinette that was kind of turned into a makeshift hospital. You know, the fire, it went north. And when it got to Marinette, it kind of split and it hit one area of Marinette, Minicani, it's by the river, it hit that. And then the rest of Marinette was spared. And then it kind of joined up again and went further up and eventually it hit some sand dune type things up by Cedar River, Escanaba, Michigan. And it finally rained and that's how, that's the only reason the fire was extinguished. So did it go all the way up into Canada? No. Okay. No, it stopped in the upper peninsula. Oh, okay. And is there a reason why it stopped there? The sand dunes. It hit sand dunes. And like I say, I've heard it finally started raining. Wow. So it just, it just continued unabated until it couldn't stop. I mean, until it had to stop. I mean. Yep. Jeez, it's terrible. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, what caused the fire? You know, they don't know. I don't know if it's known 100% sure, 
but you know, kind of what the going theory is, what it, most people believe is on the day of the fire, there was a low pressure front that came in with colder temperatures. And it came in from the West and had strong winds. And it picked up all those little fires and just grew into massive proportions. You know, there was the the drought, there was the land clearing. I mean, people were ignorant of safe burning practices. Um, And you get those 100 mile an hour winds and that cold air is rising, fanning the flames and you have that gigantic column and it turns into the vicious cycle and you have a fire tornado. Yeah. Tell us more about the fire tornado. I mean, it's, uh, I'm sorry. It was big. (laughs) Um, you know, it, it, it became pet its own weather system. Um, I, I don't understand it fully. Um, but I know there have been reports that this tornado of fire was a mile wide and it reached, I don't, I don't even know how many feet, a thousand feet into the air, I think I've heard. And the temperatures inside are just intense. I mean, yeah. cause it's, I'm, I'm wondering was, so there was this, uh, there must've been heavy wind associated with that. Was it, I mean, was it yes. like a, okay, okay, I see. I was just, it's funny because I was just watching videos of um, a warehouse that got caught in a tornado not long ago. Um, and to imagine that plus fire is pretty horrifying. Yeah. And if you Google a fire tornado, you'll see little spindly ones. But this was a lot worse than that. It just sounds like. I mean, I can totally believe that people thought it was the end of the world because when you're yeah. surrounded by this kind of destructive event and there seems to be no way out, I mean, for sure. And um, Peshtigo, was it a largely Protestant area then? Oh, I know that we had a congregational church in town and a Catholic church. I'm not sure about other religions. Okay. And so was it like an, it was um, presumably some kind of an immigrant community? Oh, yeah. There were, oh, my mom just walked into the room and she said it was primarily Lutheran. Oh, okay. Okay. The third church was Lutheran. Um, But yeah, there were immigrants. I think I've read from at least 11 different countries. I mean, people couldn't even talk to each other at times. Wow. And with them thinking that it's the end of the world, it leads into kind of a interesting story. Um, So there was a boarding, there were two boarding houses in town, but in the area in which one was, there was a pharmacy. I'm sure there were many different things built. but there was eventually a pharmacy was built and they were redoing the parking lot of the pharmacy. And a gentleman who we call our town historian, he went digging in the parking lot thinking, you know, the boarding house was here. Let's see what I can find. And he found some old pattern, um, you know, like glassware, you know, pottery stuff. But the most interesting thing he found, it was a book and it was open 
two pages. It, it's charred black. You know, you can tell it's a book because when you shine a light on it, you can see the writing. And the writing that you can see, it is the Bible and it's open to Psalms 106 and 107, which deal with devastation and disaster and survival. But I'm sure survival in the higher sense. So, you know, there was someone in that boarding house that was reading that Bible looking for salvation. Wow. Now that's, uh, that's powerful. Yeah, I agree. That's, uh, that's incredible. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we've, we've talked about on this show, we've talked about um, apocalypticism a few times. And it's interesting to look at it from a, from a psychological point of view where all you can see is this destruction and all you can see are these signs that something is happening that's uh, actually biblical. And the mindset that people get in when they're, when they're in a situation like that, it's very, very unique. Um, do you have any stories about, say, this priest or, or maybe some of the congregants or yeah. anything like that? I mentioned the, the one guy who kind of had a warning to this. He, he lived out in the country and he was married to an Indian, uh, Indian woman. Um, so he was kind of scorned, you know, having the mixed marriage. But he did a lot of trading with the Indians and her family and that. And the Native Americans, I'm sorry. Oh, you're all right. Don't worry. Okay. Um, but they told him to plow all around his house. So he plowed around his house, you know, and, and not just, you know, one plow wide, you know, it was a wide swath. They said, something's going to happen, plow around your house. People thought he was crazy, but he did it. And then on the day when they could see the crimson sky, he, they started gathering they started gathering buckets of water from the well and they threw blankets on the house to save it from ashes and his land was perfectly preserved um people went there for safety and he actually ended up becoming kind of a makeshift hospital also people went there for safety so this man who they had scorned ended up helping them all it's, the deeper we get into this, the more I'm like, whoa, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Um, wow, that's uh, that's super intense. Did, did, so what was what kind of warning? I mean, was it in the form of uh, like somebody prophesying or what was it? Why, what did he listen to? The Native Americans who saw the signs that something was going to happen. Oh, my gosh. That's so interesting. Yeah, I guess there had been a religious man, uh, I can't think of what you'd call them, who had come through town that summer and said, the end of the world is coming, repent. So that even led further to them probably believing that it was the end of the world. That's so interesting. Um, and this person came through like a couple weeks before or? I'm not sure. Okay. Well, so there was already this air of 
I mean, at least like, oh, hey, that weird guy out there in the woods, like he's saying there's something coming. Look at him, yeah. you know, building an ark by digging his, you know, little trenches yeah. around his house. Like, and then, you know, I could see the, the, uh, the public mind beginning to get a little suspicious and wow, that is so interesting. Yeah. So Father Pernan, he, he survived the fire and wrote a book about it. Um, before the fire hit, well, he was the priest of the Catholic church and he took the tabernacle, uh, the tabernacle, the Catholics, they keep the communion hosts and, you know, the body and blood of Christ in, um, and he wanted to save it. So he went to church to get, you know, the sacraments out of it, but in his haste, he dropped the key. So he took this big box and he put it on a cart to save it and pushed it to the river. He had set his horse free so he could, the horse could survive. Um, and then he, like I say, he pushed it to the river. He got to the river and he saw how bad things were and that he couldn't be worried about this material possession. And so he just pushed it into the river as far as he could and went about saving himself and helping other people. And did he recover it after or did it get burned up? Next day it was gone. Um, and you know, no one, you know, he didn't really think anything of it. He was brought to the hospital and two or three days later, he came back to Peshtigo and someone came running up to him. Father, father, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. We found the tabernacle. It was found floating on a log, floating on a log, untouched by fire, smoke, water, it was in the same condition it was in before it went into that river. Wow. So they pulled this out of the river and they put it on the sand, the burnt out sand that's all black in this white box. It became a beacon of light, a beacon of hope for the people who had survived everything around it. And is this still around? Is this in your position, perhaps? It is at the museum during the winter. It goes to the Catholic church in town and it's on display at the museum. That is amazing. And kind of one thing that makes it even more amazing. I mean, this was above air and it survived prior to the fire, the day of the fire. I don't know. People like we talked about, they must've had a premonition that something was going on. And Father Pernan, he built a, a trench and he put some of his valuables in it. And one of the things he put in it was a trunk with his vestments, the outfits that he wears when he's giving a sermon. So he buried all this stuff in a trench and he said it ended up being buried by a foot of dirt. About, I'm not sure... How much later, you know, if it's a couple days or a couple weeks, the same day, he re, he buried he unburied it, went looking for it, um, and he found the stuff that he had buried. He opened up the trunk, and he said it looked like everything had been perfectly preserved. The white 
uh, outfit that he wears. There was no yellowing, maybe just a little bit in the creases. But then he went to pick it up and it just like turned to ashes. It just disintegrated. Um, so this is in the ground. It disintegrates. But yet the tabernacle, which is above ground to all the elements, it's okay. That is crazy. Uh, George, you're a Catholic. <laughs> are there any other this, stories this... like this? <laughs> there are There are a number. I'd have to... I have to think about it, but no, there are a number of stories of sort of uh, miraculous events happening, always focused on the uh, the Eucharist. And, and of course, the tabernacle is what holds the Eucharist. So, no, this is definitely in a, in a long history of recorded uh, miraculous happenings, usually regarding the preservation of the Eucharist during some sort of disaster. And that adds to that apocalyptic feeling of this whole thing, especially since, you know, if, if anyone was at least literate enough to read the Bible, that's what they were reading, right? And so you can think of the, the public mind then, uh, even if, if with all of these immigrants who, who don't speak the same language, they're all Christianized. So that even right. adds more flavor to this apocalyptic setting. It's just fascinating to think about. There was an area in... Door County, which, you know, kind of like the thumb of, you know, Wisconsin across the, the bay. And they had a big loss in the fire too, a big area that was considered to be part of the Peshigo fire. And there was a young girl there. I'm not sh a young nun. And she had seen a vision of the Virgin Mary who said, build a I'm not sure about the exact details, and, and I apologize for that, but the Virgin Mary told her to build a church, and she, they eventually did, and it appeared before, she appeared before the fire again and said, take the people and go to this one area, and she did, and the fire didn't burn in the one area where this, this St. Adele was. So people were saved because she gathered them in that area because of a vision vision of the Virgin Mary. That is so interesting. I think I think this the spiritual aspect of this is becoming clearer and clearer. Um, it's uh, stories like this just I mean they just fascinate me. Um, <laughs> they uh, especially since you know you've got Lutherans and Catholics and Native American uh, mythologies and religions coming into play with how people are responding to this beforehand. I mean, that's the stuff that really gets the noggin jogging, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. Oof. Are there any other stories like that? I mean, because I feel like there definitely are. Well, there's a story that I always tell people when they come to the museum. We have a ring in the museum. There's a lady, she had come into Peshtigo year before the fire again, bad timing. Mm. Um, but when the fire came, they were her family, they ran to the river. And she took her wedding ring off and wrapped it up for safekeeping in her shawl. I don't know why she thought it would be safer in her shawl than on her finger. But she did. And of course, she lost her shawl on the way to the river. 
after the fire, she insisted on going and looking for the ring, going and looking for the shawl. Um, and remember, they don't know exactly where anything is because there's no landmarks left. Um, and they happened to look down and she found a corner, a white corner of her shawl that had not burned. And it was the corner that had her ring in it. And they found it. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, uh, there was one other thing you mentioned in the pre-show, uh, a story about a, a brother. That was the brother who had held his siblings, his younger brothers, and above water and found out they had died of hypothermia. Okay. Okay. Um, there is a gentleman who he was taking his, he had five daughters and a pregnant wife and he was bringing them on a wagon to the river and something happened on the way to the river where he had to get off the wagon. Um, like the lines were tangled, the burning log had hit the horse or something. He had to help the horse get up on the feet. And when he turned around, his family in the wagon was on fire. Just like that. Just like that. Of course, they died. He was burned and blind. He did make it back. He, he did make it to a creek or a river and survived the fire. Um, but his family did not. And it was just in an instant, they're gone and on fire. He came back to town and started a new family. And they're still living on the same farm in the Peshtigo area. Oh, there was wow. a little, there's a little girl. She was two or three years old at the time. And she was found by a fence post, a charred fence post after the fire. Her whole family burned. No one knows how she survived, but she did. You know, there's just miracles all over on people surviving. How did they survive? That is, I mean, I love little stories like that. And, you know, when you read about like the, uh, you know, any earthquake event, any great fire, there's always, there always appears to be these little, like you said, miracles. And yeah. I think those are the most interesting things ab about them because, you know, this is a, this is a fire that, I mean, it should kill you in every way possible. And yet somehow some of the unlikeliest of, of suspects, you might say, survive in some right. of the craziest ways. And I think that also contributes to, again, that biblical apocalyptic vibe that's coming off of this whole thing. Right. I'm, I'm certain when people visit the museum, they get a sense of that. Because I know when I went to Gettysburg, for example, it was almost as if when I was really like paying attention and I could clear my mind, it's almost as if I could imagine those soldiers marching across that field and, you know, amidst those hills, uh, there's something that is preserved. And I, I don't want to get too out there with this, but in these places where there's these kinds of events, you definitely, there is something about them that survives that isn't necessarily physical. I mean, you you run the museum. I, I wonder if you know what I'm talking about here. Yeah. And we, 
you do, you, you feel it. We have pictures in there of that were taken a couple of weeks after the fire. And when I started working there, you know, I'd look at the pictures and I'd be like, there's nothing there. And it kind of occurred to me, that's, that's the point of it. There's nothing there. It was a city. There were school kids running around, you know, having fun, you know, playing with their yo-yos. And there's nothing there now. Wow. Yeah, to think about that. You know, and people, they come into the museum. Most of the museum is time period pieces. And I've heard a couple people complain that we don't have enough artifacts related directly to the fire. The city burned. There wasn't a lot left. Yeah. I mean, we're lucky to have what we do have. And I mean, we have, you know, a few cases worth of stuff and we'd always welcome more. Um, but that's why. Because it was an apocalypse in a way. Yeah. It was, it was wiping the slate clean and even the memory of it we're lucky to have because it, it's unbelievable that anybody survived this from the sound from, you know, the sound of the scale of this. Right. I mean, it's one of these situations where, you know, this disconnected community um, could have just been completely obliterated and nobody would really know why, except that there there's ash. That's all that's left. Right. Yeah. And it, it, you know, even back then telegraph line cut, you have no record of what happened. The entire place just vanishes overnight. I mean, it, so, it sounds to me, um, what was that settlement, George, that, that dispute, Roanoke, was it? Down in Virginia, yeah, Roanoke. Yeah, that's, it sounds like that could it could have been another Roanoke, but, but with a lot more people. Because, <laughs> you know, it's not like nowadays where you have the internet and there's information flying back and forth all the time. Yeah. Wow. That's intense. No, it, it, it's weird. We had... I had a guy come into the museum last summer and we get stories like this all the time. You know, people come in, you know, my great grandfather, great, great grandfather survived the fire. Um, But this guy came in and he's like, I'm kind of tracing my grandparents, my grandparents. I'm looking into where they grew up. And but we were Jewish. I know they lived here, but we were Jewish. So I don't even know if there's anything on them. So, you know, I, we have a couple of Jewish things in the museum and I showed him that, and he was looking further. And I went and read again, the displays of the artifacts that we have in the case, the case of the artifacts. And we had these two coins that were melted together and they were donated by his grandfather. You know, he he had an unusual last name. I remember Chudikov. And so I'm like, you've got to come and see this. And I had him read it. And he's like, oh, my God, that's my grandpa. I have chills. Wow. It was just weird. Yeah. I mean, this, this whole, whenever there's like a, a disastrous event like this, all that kind of weird stuff, that spooky stuff st- sort of starts to pop out. And I'm glad we got to talk about some of this stuff because like, that's one of my favorite 
my favorite fringes of history to to discuss because you know history itself is it's like a it's not exact i mean a lot of people think of history as an exact record which you know as we've gone along with this show and even even i started that way when i started the show i'm like people need to know exactly what happened but you start to examine it a little bit closer and it's more like an echo uh of something that happened and there's rumors about what it was and there's some people who might have been there but getting the whole picture is next to impossible and so when you get to these these weird aspects where people are seeking out their past seeking out you know the the roots that they might have in something like this that's when it starts to get a little bit like okay so we're not talking about history we're talking about like a ghost story almost in a right. way I don't know if either of you get that sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if like, I can, uh, oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, I've thought at times that I wish when I were in high school, I would have paid closer attention to history, you know, and that I'd love to get my hands on a high school, you know, middle school history book. But then I think about, yeah, it is written from a slant, you know, of what people think it was. And we don't exactly know. It just sort of um, professionally, um, for me, what I work with is not pri is not history per se. I don't, for the most part in my own scholarly work, it's not necessarily about what happened in a sort of, you know, full empirical sense. What I really do is historiography. It's about how do people think and write about what happened? How do people throughout, well, for lack of a better term, history engage with events in the past? How does it shape them? How do they choose to commemorate them and write them down? And to me, that's much more interesting than simply history, which is just a, you know, you could put it into bullet points. This happened in this year. This happened in this year. For me, what's really interesting about history is actually historiography. It's how do people shape and engage with their historical circumstances and events and how do they pass them on? That's the real interesting thing for me. And that's beautifully said. I think one of one of my favorite episodes that we did was, uh, well, you actually weren't on it, was William Tell. Uh, William Tell, like, may or may not have existed, but for all intents and purposes, he absolutely did uh, because it was he was such an important figure in Swiss history that um, whether or not he was literally a real guy or an amalgamation of, you know, five or 10 different people. The point is that the story itself was so strong. It shaped Switzerland for hundreds and hundreds of years to this day. And I get that sense about Peshtigo is like, there's some, there, there was like this thing that happened that was so big, um, but so disastrous that it almost exists in a darkened memory and even having the relics that we have and even you know finding that bible under the parking lot like all of that makes it even more interesting and more mysterious you know and the fact that we don't know exactly how it started you know i'm not sure i really believe the chicago fire was started by a cow um because like it, you know it could have been anything that's been disproven the cow was framed R really <laughs> yeah yeah we have a story about it in the museum Really? Yeah. W uh, would you like to elaborate <laughs> a little bit? Oh, geez. Um, it it was started in the area where that was. 
I don't think they know either exactly how the Chicago fire was, but it wasn't started by Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Well, I, I totally, I, I would totally not be surprised because it, the cow sounds, the, the cow sounds like a, a convenient little blame victim. There. Right. Um, I'm, I'm more apt to think it reminds me of uh, the, the crystal palace. Did you ever hear how that burned down? No. Um, it, it was similar. It was, a, it was an apocalyptic style fire. And there was just this convenient little story about like, I can't remember what it was. It was like a, either somebody forgot to put out a cigarette or an ashtray caught fire, but the whole thing, just a glass palace just melted. I mean, Winston Churchill said, um, he, he could see it from where he was. Um, and he said it was the it was the end of an, of innocence in Europe or something like that, uh, but it was the same kind of event that completely shifted the story of uh, of Britain or a, of an entire people because it was just so disastrous. And I don't even think anybody died in the Crystal Palace burning, but it was the end of an age. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because the Crystal Palace was also used. It was moved and it was it originated with the World's Fair. Um, it was used as like a field hospital at one point, um, a training ground at another. Uh, and then because, and it's like, they couldn't get rid of it. So it just, it eventually it just went up in flames for some reason. And there's again, so much mystery surrounding it. And, uh, I see, I feel like there's a lot of discussion going on, at least on other podcasts that are a little bit weirder than ours, um, that these fires, these apocalyptic events are, uh, basically sometimes I, I don't know how to put this exactly, but they mark, uh, points in history where things begin to shift toward a new era. Uh, and you know, I don't know if I get that sense about this one, but definitely about the crystal palace, something changed when that happened. Um, and Peshtigo, you know, the Chicago fire, something changed about Chicago when that happened. Uh, and there's a reason we focus on one over the other. And I wonder why that is. Yeah. Well, in the, the building that the museum is in has an interesting story. Right after the fire, there were two churches built. One on the east side of the river and one on the west side of the river. The Catholic church was on the west side of the river. In 1927, the Catholic church was struck by lightning and burnt again. That's odd. <laughs> yeah. It, at that time, the congregational church on the other side wasn't being used. So they sold it to the Catholics and it was moved from one side of the river to the other side. Um, we once had the grandson or great grandson of um, the guy who was in charge of, of moving it come into the museum. And he said that at first they had tried moving it with a truck and it burnt the transmission. So they had to resort to good old fashioned horsepower. But then what happened, so it fit exactly in the same foundation because of same architect, both buildings. And they were putting it down on the foundation. And there was a little girl standing there. And she said, it's backwards. 
they put the church down backwards. So they had to lift it up and do a 180 and flip it down the right way. <laughs> wow. wow. That's... <laughs> did when you have when a did you say this was? <laughs> 1927. Wow. No, that's just, that's just hilarious. Cause that, it just sounds like, you know, something when you're, you know, moving furniture or something, you realize, oh, I need to, made a little mistake, need to just, you know, flip that around. But this is just a whole building that they put down <laughs> yeah. the wrong way. Right. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. And so this building is is where the Historical Society is based. Yes. So it's the oldest, probably the oldest or one of the oldest buildings in Peshigo. Um, it was built right after the fire. There is another house, the only, uh, I would say, structure. There was a house that was framed in with green wood, you know, the, the fresh wood. Mm. That didn't burn. It was charred, but it didn't burn. And they went on to rebuild that house after with the frame in. Um, so that house is still there. And this, the museum is still there as the oldest buildings in town. Wow. And so those are the only structures that survived, or I'm sorry, that, that one house is the only thing that survived. Yes. That's crazy. That's And crazy. it was just the framing. That's amazing. I, I, I know we're, we're coming up on time here, so I just want to get one more thing in. Um, so what happened after this? How did Peshtigo recover? And uh, what, what was the restructuring, rebuilding process like? Well, there were a lot of people who did help rebuild at, you know, people had heard of the Chicago fire and they were gathering, the, the state of Wisconsin was gathering supplies for Chicago and the governor of Wisconsin was in Chicago surveying the damage and his wife found out, the telegram came in, his wife found out about it. And so she kind of commandeered a railroad of supplies that were going to Chicago and she sent them up to Peshtigo. Um, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's and a she great was because a young thing. She was very young. Because just sort of thinking about it and knowing how um I mean, knowing how media works both then and now, I'm sure that everyone in the country had heard, you know, heard of the Chicago fire very quickly because well, that's news. Like people have heard of Chicago. So if you're a journalist, you're going to write about the Chicago fire and people around, the, you know, people are going to want to help all these poor people in Chicago who lost their homes. But if you're a journalist, there's not much clout or money. And, you know, oh, yeah, some place in Wisconsin no one's ever heard of had a fire. That right. doesn't get you anywhere. And so journalists, for the most part, aren't going to be concerned about it. And unfortunately, with media, if the journalists aren't concerned about it in the public consciousness, it never happened. Right. Great yeah. comment, man. William Ogden, he did come back and help rebuild Peshtigo. Um, it was never rebuilt to the degree. Um, there was a sawmill rebuilt, which burned again. <laughs> wow. Had kind of bad luck there. Yeah, um, sounds like it. Yeah. You know, I've, I've wondered what would Peshtigo be like if there was never the fire i'm sure it would have been bigger you just don't know um, but there were a lot of people who did help rebuild 
And if you look at the the results <laughs> of Chicago versus Peshtigo, I think one city might look better than the other in the modern era. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the size thing was uh, a blessing <laughs> in a way. Um, but, uh, okay, so we're we're an hour in, and I think it's probably time to, to, to wrap this up. George, did you have any further questions you had for Wendy? I don't think so. Yeah, no, I just wanted to say how, how much I enjoyed this. What a what a just phenomenally interesting story, especially the, those, you know, the details you were able to provide with sort of the individual stories of people, because that's the stuff that's sort of hard to get to from the outside when you don't know a lot about it. For sure. And I know that, you know, the reading I was doing on this, it doesn't like even on like mainstream, it doesn't sound like that big of a deal or there'd be that much interesting stuff about it. And that's why I knew I had to get in contact with the, uh, with the actual fire museum because it's uh i mean it's a story that needs to be told it needs to be remembered and needs to be preserved because you know the fire may have burned up the the whole town but it you know it created a story that shouldn't that should not vanish from human consciousness so to speak um let's see here let me just make sure we covered everything um oh yes um if uh, people wanted to learn more about this, Wendy, where should they where should they go? I know that obviously we want to get them to Peshtigo Fire. I'm sorry, Peshtigo Fire Peshtigo Museum dot com. Um, but there was also this book by Reverend Peter Pernan, uh, the Great yeah. Peshtigo Fire. Yeah, he wrote a book about his. He took some time to recuperate after the fire, um, and then he wrote a book called The Great Peshtigo Fire, an eyewitness account. Um, and that that's a great book to read. Um, there's also a book, Firestorm and Peshtigo. We have a few books. There's, there's, you know, probably half dozen books out there written about it. But the one we always recommend is Father Peter Pernan. Um, and because that's where you're going to get the accurate description. And how can people support um, the Peshtigo Fire Museum? Well, we are totally donation-based. There isn't a set, there's no fee to enter. It's if you want to pay something, you do. If you don't, you don't. Um, so it's all donation and, you know, we get people that do send donations to us and that's how we run. So they could join the historical society, which again, you'd probably have to link up to through the, the website, or they could send a donation to the Peshtigo Historical Society and frankly, if you sent it to the Peshtigo Historical Society, Peshtigo, Wisconsin, we're probably going to we're going to get it because the city isn't a huge one. Right. So um, and and the membership is five dollars per year. Is that right? Yes. Five dollars okay. a year for the to belong to the Historical Society. And this year I'm going to be starting to do a monthly either monthly or bi-monthly newsletter for the members of the society who provide their email address, kind of say what's going on with the museum, how many visitors we're having, and that kind of thing. Because we do get quite a few visitors. 
I believe it. I mean, if I saw this thing from the side of the road, I'd be like, hey, I need to stop there. <laughs> you know, you'd be surprised. We get visitors from all over the world um, in 2018. And I just happened to grab this today when I was over at the museum. We had visitors from 21 different countries. Oh, wow. Like Dubai, France, Israel, Luxembourg. It's just amazing. South Africa. And they end up in Peshtigo, Wisconsin. That is so, I mean, I'm not surprised. That's what the internet does. It, it, it draws yeah. people to the really interesting spots. And, you know, hey, nowadays, like, it's nothing to see the Eiffel Tower or the Grand Canyon. You want to see, like, you know, the Black Canyon of the Gunnison or Royal Gorge or something that's less known, um, but has almost an even crazier or more interesting background or story. Um, I know that's how I am. Um, yeah. Somebody says, hey, let's go to Chicago, see the big buildings. I'm like, big, eh, whatever. I don't want to deal with the traffic. I think I'd rather drive out to Pesh to go and see what this museum has to offer. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, we might have to do a we talk about dead people field trip sometime, Aaron. For Me real. And you go to go to Pesh to go. Well, you got to get you got to get out here first. I mean, you're in Pennsylvania, Maryland, wherever the hell you are. I don't know where you live anymore. Um, <laughs> but you got to get out here. We'll go visit. Um, and I would just uh, I would just like to say um, for all the listeners, if you can send five bucks a year, become a member of the Historical Society. I'm sure these things make a much bigger deal than you think. It's the same with our our Patreon. It's like you give five bucks. You know, that means the world to us. Um, so if you want more information, visit the Peshtigo Historical Society and definitely sign up for their annual membership. It's buying them a cup of coffee. Come on, people. Um, and check out the book, uh, the books that uh, Wendy recommended. I mean, this is a, this is a story that needs more eyes on it. Um, so, George, did you have any final comment? I don't think so. And Wendy, what about you? I'm the one that answers the email. So if you have any questions, feel free to shoot an email. There's a link on our website, which I believe is peshtigohistorical.com. Okay. And uh, we'll put we'll put it in the uh, the episode description as well when it comes out. And uh, thank you so much, Wendy, for coming on and and telling us these amazing stories. It's just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for help spreading the word and having me on. Well, wildfires this year have destroyed hundreds of thousands of acres, hundreds of homes, and killed more than twenty people. They actually still don't compare to the deadliest wildfire in history. In 1871, Wisconsin's Peshtigo Fire killed more than 1,200 people. News 13's Bob Martin has the story from Wisconsin. In 1871, the woods surrounding the bay north of Green Bay were full of sawmills, loggers harvesting tall white pines. Thousands of immigrants from around the world poured in. As soon as they got off the ships, they were all there working. You could get a job almost immediately. Other trees and brush that interfered with logging or clearing farmland were slashed and burned on the spot. Using fire as a tool caused problems. Intentional burns often got out of hand and bucket brigades could only douse small fires. Then on the night of October 8th, after months of drought, a deep low pressure system spawned hurricane velocity winds throughout the region. Small blazes exploded into one enormous firestorm. It surrounded Pashtun.
He said it sounded like 20 locomotives. Uh, the noise was immense. It was a, a, like a numbing, uh, unbelievable. I think that was it. They couldn't believe that an ordinary, what they were used to, a forest fire, was that big and there was nowhere to go. Within a matter of 15 to 20 minutes, the whole city was burning at one time. I can't imagine what was going through those people's minds. They knew they had to run for their life. Survivors would tell of fireballs blasting through town, smashing into people and buildings instantly. Impact scores of those who were trapped. Park now memorializes the fire tornado's victims. Experts say the full death toll across the region was probably about 2,500. 